Episode one from your fellow EWB UW chapter. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's often shortened to DAPL, and it has burst into the forefront of media coverage in the past few months as protests took hold in the area that did not end peacefully at times. There's a lot of media coverage, like tons of media coverage. The people that are going to be talking with us today are to my left. My name is Ed. I am a mechanical engineer at the University of Waterloo and a member of the UWB-UW chapter. My name is Simon. I am a second year environmental engineering student also at the University of Waterloo and I will be participating in this discussion. Hi, my name is Chan. I'm in two, two a environmental engineering and I'll, I'm a member of UWB. Hi, I'm Senet. I'm a second year geological engineer and uh, yeah, I'm also going to be talking. Uh, my name is Deepal. I'm a management engineer, and uh, I'm also a member of EWB, so I'll be proud to be recording. And Simon here will give us a synopsis of what's going on and what we know so far. So just a rundown of the basic facts about DAPL. Uh, it's about a thousand miles long, stretches through four states in the United States. It's a 30-inch diameter underground pipe carrying crude oil from North Dakota, through South Dakota, through Iowa, to Illinois. Um, a lot of the controversy lies around the location of its routing, and just as a fact taken off of the official website, uh, if you're interested, dapplepipelinefacts.com, uh, 99.9% of it goes through private property, and then the other 0.02% goes through federal land. Um, the website also claims that there have been several consultations, public hearings um, throughout the planning process, and as a result, subsequent deviations and adjustments to the pipeline plan. In regards to what's happening right now, at particularly one of the hotspots, uh, Standing Rock, is um, a large number of peaceful protests run by members of the Standing Rock Reservation, as well as have been responding with force using things such as pepper spray, uh, tear gas, guard dogs, and um, I guess forced arrests, if you may. It's important to note as well that it wasn't just the CU who were uh, participating in these protests. A lot of environmental activists took hold in temporary camps, which have only recently been disbanded and cl cleaned up. Okay, so one of the biggest things that we have uh, going on here is this idea of uh, different energy resources because the main reason that this pipeline is being put in is to transfer oil from one place to another. So, Chen, do you have anything to contribute? <laughs> Shoot, like, okay, I don't know how to. There's a environmental hazard with regarding to the pipeline issue, and if there were to be leakage, then do you guys like I? I don't know. I I don't. I've been researched the environmental effects, so. Of an oil spill? Yeah, of oil spill that are built underground. So well, that can be an open question. Like, what do you guys think about how would the oil spill affect these people's lives, according to what we know now? Um, I mean, well, I can jump in here. Oh, okay. <clears throat> there will be a lot of uh, water pollution, especially that's an issue at Standing Rock. Um, it's right ne The pipeline is running right next to a uh, water source that they are using for drinking water. And that's going to affect both the indigenous people 
and the environment itself because there's a lot of different animals and uh, <clears throat> ecosystems that rely on this source of water. Um, it's also um, the crude oil definitely will affect the soil in a negative way, which will in turn also just uh, leave a really negative impact on the ecosystems. And just to plug in on top of that, um, I've actually dealt with some of these things during my previous work term. Um, in, when we're talking about contaminant transport um, in soil media. So essentially what happens uh, when you have a, I guess, bad substance underground and interacting with the geological media of your system or location, um, tracking and monitoring gets very, very complicated. And it, it's an expensive process, not only to just monitor and track, but also remediate in terms of um, cleaning up your site for the purposes of uh, improving human health or reducing risk to things like drinking water and um, or other e ecological receptors within your area. Yeah, that is another thing. Um, it's not just like a uh, biological concern. It's also concerning, say, if you want to build there, right? Um, you will definitely have to remediate the soil if you don't want uh, our own drinking water to get contaminated. And also there could be some seepage through foundations and the like. So. Definitely for humans, um, as well as the environment. I mean, the environment affects humans as well. I'm not saying that's not the case, but um, in a lot of different ways, it's going to affect us negatively. And uh, as also want to say, like also having been on the side of like the people doing the remediation, um, it's not a simple process at all. And like not only is it complex, it it can drag on for a very long time. Yeah. And I'm just talking about like gas stations and stuff. So like with a pipeline of this size. Like, if if disaster were to strike, um, we could see, like, up to 50 years or even longer of just the land not being usable at all. So in terms of alternatives, what do you guys think could have been done differently here uh, with respect to the pipeline? Like, the pipeline has been cleared to be put in, especially recently with the new administration. It has been completely cleared to go in and expedited, <laughs> yeah. actually. And so... What we know that the reason why is money, right? They're still they've started fracking, and so now there's a bunch of oil that they have access to. What could they have done differently? Like, what is, what are the alternatives? I guess the current alternative that's in place right now is rail, right? So what they've been doing is transporting all their crude oil by train, and that's also not a very good option because it's also it's dangerous similar to the pipeline and it's also it requires a lot more energy to move a uh, specific volume of uh, crude oil um, by rail compared to by pipeline uh, another interesting um, I guess dynamic to look at this by is um, that there's a lot more accidents per volume of oil transported per um, rail compared to a pipeline and if you look at it in that respect uh, pipeline could be considered to be a safer alternative to uh, rail transport. Yeah. Chan? Yeah, so about 70% of the oil extracted from the railroads. And it has uh, experienced bottlenecks and is a more expensive form of transportation than by pipeline. So pipeline is the better alternative. So I guess to, to piggyback off of that, I think we can all agree that like economically speaking for this company, whoever is implementing it, it is more financially viable to do it this way, right? This yeah. investment. I also got the numbers for it. And uh, so the, the Dakota Access pro Project is more than 
it, it'll cost about $3.8 billion. And I'm assuming it's in USD. And I'm taking this from an um, article, Dakota Access Pipeline Project will create significant jobs tax revenue uh, by Pipeline and Gas Journal in 2014 by Perimeter K. I guess that leads us nicely into a discussion about media because uh, something that this whole the DAPL has been plagued with is a lot of media coverage because of the protests and because of what's going on at Standing Rock. And there's a lot of information out there, uh, regardless of where you stand on whether we should be using oil, whether it should be uh, done, I guess, is this idea that people still were hurt and people were still kind of violated on their own land, specifically the CU Nation. And so how do you guys feel about the treatment of the meat, like how the media was treating this whole situation? Do you think it exacerbated the problem in any way? I guess... Um I feel like a big issue with the media is that, uh, as it was kind of mentioned there, it's very biased towards the uh, oil companies. So there's a lot of <clears throat> major media or mainstream media that's been ignoring a lot of the police brutality. So a lot of that information, I guess, is in a way being covered up by the media just by not being uh, spoken about. And I suppose that's because the oil companies have a lot more power than these uh Aboriginal peoples and protesters who are on site um, at these, uh, I guess, the uh, pipeline constructions. Um, as, I guess, objective as the media is, they do always tend to innately skew towards their audience. So you, what you see is um, sort of bubbles, or they call them like information silos, where um, if you subscribe to a certain viewpoint, you're going to read media that sort of supports that narrative. So if you feel that um, police brutality is an issue, you're obviously going to block out any, any media that sort of denies this and you're gonna identify more with that narrative. And the same is true for the people that oppose the pipeline and feel like it's just an obstruction to capitalism and like economic uh, security, I guess. So it, at the end of the day, it, like going towards like any coverage of it, you have to go into it with an open mind and take in both aspects of the argument. But if we are talking about um, the treatment of the people, I, I do feel that the police do have a tendency to um, act um, aggressively, if that's fair. Do we have any numbers on that? Any like information on, uh, we, we know that like dogs were released and that some less than possibly ethical practices were taken by the, the riot police, uh, but do you think they were justified in doing that? Absolutely not. In protests like these where authorities <clears throat> are put in place to essentially, I guess, contain the protest, instances of brutality just almost always occur, in the, at least in the cases that I've heard about. Um, and when we talk about police brutality, this isn't a matter of what happens when a protester crosses the line. and you know, regardless of the context of the protest, you often see police dragging protesters across their picket line to a point where they are, by law, allowed to make an arrest. And I've always sort of wondered what they've been instructed to do by their superiors before they're out there on site and facilitating this, I guess, guarding stance for whatever proponent has 
requested their services. From an article taken from Democracy Now!, uh, indigenous environmental network about a violent police raid on a frontline camp established at the site of the named sacred tribal uh, burial ground where unlicensed Dakota access security guards attacked Native Americans with dogs and pepper spray on September 3rd. So there's definitely been some instances of, um, I guess, breaches, like very major breaches of, of some people's rights in this area. Um, I think we can all agree on that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> in an article in CBC here where, from December where they talk about there's actual American veterans that are joining the protesters sort of protect them because they, they feel that they're not being protected and they're maybe being slandered on media as the instigators of uh, committing some sort of acts of violence and they're saying here as a quote that uh, if they ever instigate any sort of violence or the moment they throw rocks or bottles or throw anything they lose their mission they've lost so as soon as they committed that, they feel they've lost any sort of um, support they've had from the public even, and they've denounced anything that they've worked for. So the media can get images of violence that may not be instigated by the protesters and just write articles as if it was, then suddenly, like, that's all we know, so we might believe this media, uh, but it's not necessarily true. I guess it kind of makes sense for veterans to step in and protect these protesters, because they're sworn to protect people, the people of their country against threats, foreign and domestic, right? Right, of course. Yeah. I guess just another uh, classic, well not classic, but just another example of a protester being dragged across the line and arrested happened, I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, um, on the West Coast when the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline was being protested on Burnaby Mountain. Um, the grandson of David Suzuki, uh, present at that protest, was in fact dragged across the line and <clears throat> arrested. Um, and th that whole incident triggered a lot of media coverage. But like when you look at the situation now, it, what if this person who was arrested was not the grandson of a prominent environmental activist? Would this, the question would be, would media still have covered just as much as they did in this situation? Well, do you think it would have? Absolutely not. Well, that's one of the biggest things that's, that seems to be plaguing a lot of the problem is this idea of, of media bias, which is why I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how the media is viewing uh, what's going on. Um, I guess we can move the conversation on over to uh, the economic impact of the pipeline. Specifically, one of the tenants of... Uh, the new administration was that there was going to be a lot of jobs created through this pipeline. What do we know about these jobs? Well, as soon as the um, pipeline begins its operation, 160 permanent full-time jobs will be created, 11 million dollars in additional income, 5 million more in production and sales, 55 million in state and local taxes, and a reduction in rail service delays for farm-to-market transportation. So it's, it's taken from the article again. It's talking about annual, um, annual benefit of the pipeline. But I'm not sure if this is um, coming from the whole region of those four states, or if it's like per states. Right. It's not uh, stated exactly whether it's uh, the whole region that's being um, economically uh, benefited by those, or just uh, one state. 
I think one of the most interesting things to, to consider is also the idea of temporary full-time jobs that will be brought on by this because that seems to be a huge uh, talking point for uh, purveyors of the pipeline is the idea that it is going to bring like thousands of jobs but as was heard there seems to be only hundreds maybe uh, permanent jobs per year and so uh, what do you guys think uh, about I guess the, the the nature of these jobs I'm actually curious I don't know if any of you guys know this but do you know how many jobs will be lost from the rail industry due to the Dakota Access Pipeline <laughs> Because I'd like to see how that compares to how many, I guess, jobs, like full-time jobs, will be made after the pipeline's actually built. Just, you know? I'm assuming, but, like, the because the pipeline is an additional method of transportation, so I'm assuming they'll still be keeping the railroad. And while still uh, transporting the oil through the railroad method, they'll also be transporting through pipeline. That makes sense. It says that here on, like, the uh, dakotapipelinefacts.com that, the access pipeline will eliminate 500 to 740 rail cars and or 250 plus trucks needed to transport that crude oil currently. So they are also reducing it down? So by using this pipeline instead, they'll be reducing the traffic on other systems by yeah. that much. So when you take that into consideration, I feel like the amount of jobs that the pipeline is, I guess, making, when you put it into that kind of perspective, it's also getting rid of a whole bunch of jobs that have already been established through rail industry, through all the transport industries that are currently in place. And um, I feel like when you're looking at the benefits of the pipeline, it's always important just to see what that's also going to destroy. Um, in this case, being uh, jobs that are currently in place. Since we're on the topic of jobs, and well, pretty much all of us sitting here are engineers, um, I'd also like to bring up the fact that when we speak of these jobs associated with the pipeline, we're talking specific industries. And when you put that in context of, say, the community surrounding this pipeline, should this imply that those being affected by the pipeline are also benefiting in terms of employment? What I'm trying to get at is not everybody residing near the pipeline will be you know, technicians or yeah. railway operators or pipeline engineers and that sort of thing. In fact, when this pipeline goes through private property, a lot of it is actually farmland. And so my question is, like, how does this affect the agricultural industry in terms of employment? It will be something that's very interesting to see. It, it is pretty well documented by a lot of economists that the, the note, like, the defining factor of a mature economy is not investing in these kinds of jobs. Instead, uh, autonomy and kind of technology, everything's in tech now, but as like crazy technologically advanced as these pipelines are, it is very interesting that it's become uh, such a sticking point in the media as well because of the fact that there are already many, many pipelines already there. So I guess I kind of want to hear you guys' take as to, was this a straw that like broke the camel's back, per se? I think at the end of the day, when the revenue comes in, it has to go through basically the company that's kind of operating mm -hmm. this pipeline, right? So in a sense, once this income disperses down to all the working classes and then subsequently to the other sectors, um, you kind of get sort of like a controlled 
flow of income to certain areas based on the agendas of the people that are receiving it from the top down, right? So really what I think is in terms of like improving the economy or I guess you said the maturity of an economy, yeah. Of an economy, yeah. Um, I feel like that's now going to just be in the hands of the people who will be, I guess, making that first contact with this in income, i.e. the companies operating the pipeline. And so that's kind of terrifying for me to think about because with the economic stability is based on the agenda of a pipeline company and this econo economy is going to be affecting everybody within the region, regardless of whether or not your agenda aligns to theirs. Well, that's, that's kind of like terrifying to think about because <clears throat> I then have no control over it. Because if I want access to anything else and pursue a financial uh, endeavor in another sector, I, I won't have the funding to do so. So does that mean you want to, I guess, diversify your, um, like who has the power in terms of energy in, uh, in the economy? not just on these uh, large uh, oil companies who own the pipelines? In a sense, yes. Um, I haven't really thought about how other sectors, such as the performing arts, could potentially <coughs> be involved with you know, the energy sector. Um, but if there were some way that this first contact of income or control or, I guess, involvement with the energy sector can trickle down and involve more people and I guess a more diverse range of professionals, I feel like that would lead to a more equal dis distribution of the income that results from this whole undertaking. So I guess the problem comes in is when the oil industry makes all this a lot of money and then they just like kind of keep, keep for themselves and then they just keep using those money again to develop just their own um, areas of industry. Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I feel like, um, yeah, it is troubling to have economic futures like invested in oil companies, specifically because like Chan was saying, they're not really known for sort of the distribution of wealth. And I feel like this case specifically, like not to get political, but it sort of like makes a case for, I guess, America as a plutocracy, because um, even before the current administration got into office, they were talking about already approving this pipeline. And um, it's, so, like, this is an interesting fact. I, like, take from this what you will, but um, Donald Trump had previously owned shares in Energy Partners Incorporated, the company building the pipeline. He's since, like, he's divested from it. He has no, um, no shares in it anymore, but they, had, they did contribute up to, like, $100,000 to his campaign. And in addition, his appointee as Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, sat on the board of Energy Partners for some time. So take that what you will, take from that what you will if like you want to make the case that it was a direct uh, result of that, but it's just something to keep in mind. Right. It's pretty clear that kind of considering the numbers really doesn't tell us the whole story. Uh, and one of the things that it also didn't talk to us about too much was the idea of trespassing the Aboriginal people's rights on that land, um, there's definitely it's definitely well documented that there's been agreements in the Constitution of the United States as well as Canada for 
hundreds of years that promised these people relative auto autonomy. And even though that 0.1% or, or so is traveling through this land, these people should have still had some, or a greater say, some would argue, uh, about what's going on with the pipeline. So how do you guys think of that kind of breach of uh, these aboriginal issues? Because this has been going on within our own borders and I'm sure in the United States for a long time. It's just that, again, the media has brought this to the forefront. So how do you guys feel, like what, what should have been done differently maybe? Well, in terms of the consultation process um, during the planning stages of the pipeline, I don't know too much about how these consultations have been conducted, but through a course that I'm currently taking, which is environmental impact assessment, um, I've learned that many of the times, because I guess the whole culture and agendas of the two governments, one being the federal government and then the other being uh, the Aboriginal community, um, like consultations are not the same as just any other stakeholder with the proponent. Um, in terms of sitting down and talking to each other, um, at least what I've heard from my instructor, was that a lot of the times you have a whole team of lawyers representing the proponent in very expensive suits and I'm pretty sure briefcases full of legal terms to throw at the other side of the table. You know, you have that on one side and then you have maybe a, a village elder or a chief or somebody that represents the community but not necessarily is knowledgeable enough in terms of like the formalities of consultation sitting on the other end. And essentially what happens is these exchanges will push the agenda of the proponent but not necessarily contribute to an effective kind of meeting or, or dis conversation with the Aboriginal communities and just because of the lack of resources and like the misrepresentation of or inaccuracies of um, the representation of the Aboriginal uh, I guess concerns um, the whole process is although in place not so I, I would think a sufficient in terms of respecting things like land rights. How feasible do you think it is to keep people happy on all sides of the equation? This is a very complicated problem because once you start thinking about what makes people happy on both sides, there are so many other factors com that come into play, right? Um, you know, the main goal of the pipeline company would be to get the pipeline in place and make lots of money, right? Whereas the implications for that on the other side of the table um, would result in things like, okay, how is this going to affect say like my hunting grounds or how, how is this going to affect migratory patterns of species that we hold valuable or how is this going to um, improve the economy and um, financial stability of my immediate region that sort of thing so there's a lot of factors that come into play and everybody has their own way of doing things um, and just because there's this big difference in what people hold valuable I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done in order to sort of compensate and develop a feasible solution. <clears throat> so like oil is still the largest, like the most used energy 
resource in the United States. And it's not just affecting these big oil companies, right? Everybody who's using energy in the United States is relying on these pipelines for their energy consumption. So by not putting this pipeline in place, you're really kind of impeding other people's, like Americans' ability Congress. yeah, to progress, to develop, because um, without an increased uh, energy, I guess, flow, you can't consume more energy, and you're not going to develop. And I mean, as great as it would be to be able to rely on different uh, energy sources, such as renewable, hydro, nuclear, things like that, um, currently, I, it, I don't think it's a feasible uh, undertaking and we need to we, we if we want to keep living the way we are or if Americans want to keep living the way they are um, they're gonna need to put this pipeline in with when we talk about fairness in a situation like this and we talk about yes both sides do have um, different concerns but we have to talk about the pro proportionality of those concerns because when we're talking about the native needs they're talking about their right to clean water, their right to um, like, like food autonomy. and land, exactly, oh, yeah, autonomy. autonomy. And when we're talking about the rest of the country and their access to um, a, 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 a level of living that they're used to, the effects are, like, they're not really comparable because one pipeline, I don't think, is going to drastically affect the standard of living for the average American as opposed to the standing rock, yeah. I agree, and I guess to think of proportionality again, um, how much of the population is this pipeline gonna positively affect, or at least keep the standard of living the same? It's a, it's a much greater population. The aboriginals make up a small fraction of the American population. So in that sense, um, the aboriginals, like, even though it's going to leave a much greater effect on their lives, like, they're not even going to be able to, I guess, function, right? Because they're not going to have access to any of the basic human resources that are needed to live. Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of that, um, their population is severely outnumbered by the rest of Americans. And that's definitely... You know, it tips the uh, tips the fairness. I guess not in their favor, right? Short end of the stick. They definitely got the short end of the stick in this case. I know we don't really have an impact in this case. Like we don't get a say in it as much right now. But I guess it's our job to be empathetic towards these Aboriginal people and their population. And to I guess going back to the whole proportionality thing of how Aboriginal or Indigenous communities are a small percentage of the total population you're talking about uh, that are either directly or indirectly affected by this pipeline because like the total would be everybody who benefits from this income generated from crude oil transportation right <clears throat> like the fact that there's such a small fraction is exactly why it's so frustrating and brought to light because a lot of the times when things like this happen and not, I'm not just saying with Aboriginal or Indigenous communities this could be minorities of any background, right? Minorities often struggle to have their voices heard and sort of broadcasted through this media, media, me media. And that's precisely the point. I mean, yes, when you weigh the scales and say that the majority benefits, you're kind of just, you know, in a way, reinforcing the fact that 
you're not you're listening to the to the minority and their voices of concern right so it is a very difficult balance uh and that is something that's pervasive in like every level of society is this idea of minority rules right and so it it is very very difficult to keep all sides of the table happy something that's very important for engineers without borders though is this idea of systemic change and i want to hear you guys' take on how we being from so far out are able to help this cause in any way if we so choose to do so or what we can do to kind of forward this whatever movement whether it is that you do want to uh, support the dapple or not specifically these uh, kind of human rights breaches that tend to happen in these sorts of situations um there's a um so i've done research and this is uh there's an after, just as how salt had monopoly over food preservation and shaped the great empire's international behaviors, today oil is a new salt, having monopoly over transportation system and giving those who control it being power on the world stage. So people that are in in control of those like oil industries, they have the power to do whatever. And it's and it's right now we're like kind of bounded by this, um, like we just can't go on a uh, day without using oil. Uh, so I think what Chan's trying to get at is like in terms of systemic change yeah. we're looking at an investment in an initial investment into non-sustainable energy sources and perhaps this could be a starting point at looking at right the so I guess the root cause is that we we just uh, we rely on the oils too much and that's where they start yeah. it's important to sort of break out of that indifference because if you're indifferent to sort of the marginalization of one group, then it becomes easier to marginalize your group or groups that weren't formerly marginalized. If we don't stand up for one violation of our rights, then it, it's a slippery slope. And so sort of by just staying informed about this and just not, I don't know, turning a blind eye to this kind of thing, that's how we can <clears throat> sort of continue to impact systemic change. No, I definitely have to agree with you there, Depot. Um, Awareness is the key here, because um, currently that's all we can really do as students, I feel. It's difficult to get involved with companies that are like as big as the, yeah, exactly, yeah. these high up oil companies. Currently, it's, it seems like as a, just a student trying to get through, you know, to, you know, the end of the term, it, it's difficult, it's difficult for us to make an impact besides spreading awareness and being, I, I guess, up to date in what's occurring in this, um, in this kind of issue. Um, however, since we, we, I like to think, have the potential uh, to be involved in these kind of issues uh, in the future, uh, I feel like, and this is, gonna, like, this is going to affect a lot of people um, who are interested in this sort of topic, um, I guess it's our job to get involved in any way we can, uh, either through protests or, I suppose, just trying to make it higher up in some kind of company, get some kind of power to combat the injustice that's occurring here. But for now, I feel like in our current situation, like you said, Depot, our only option really is to make a podcast, let people be aware of what's happening right now in regards to Dapple. Right. Just talk about it. And this ties back to the whole 
purpose, or at least one of the purposes of having a university chapter for engineers without borders, right? We've come to the realization that in order to create systemic change, although we are eager to get our hands, you know, dirty, roll up our sleeves and like actually partake in something that creates a systemic impact, you can't really do so without first developing a very deep understanding of the issue at hand. And like you said, Senate, we are currently just students, right? There are only so many things that we are capable of. Not saying that we're not, we're incapable people, but yeah. we, we will come to a point where we will become more capable and more effective in terms of addressing these issues, should we choose to do so. But for the time being, as we continue to struggle at this educational institution, yeah. <laughs> to try and better ourselves through higher education, it's important for us to take the initiative in terms of, under, uh, I guess, making this first step in understanding problems like these so that as we collectively, I guess, develop ourselves in whatever profession that it is that we're pursuing, we can also take this into consideration and, you know, sort of develop all these ideas of how you can, uh, I guess, tackle this problem at the end of the day when you finish this degree with that iron ring. Exactly. Or future issues, not just this one exactly. in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why also in terms of like EWB, there is a professional chapter that exists mm -hmm. to do more work in, in continuation of all the work that's been done here at a university chapter. I think definitely you guys are all saying some, some really great things here. It is important. I think one of the biggest uh, things that we are going to have to come out from this conversation is, is that idea of kind of considering all aspects, kind of making sure you're not turning a blind eye to these very universal problems. If you just looked up the DAPL pipeline facts, you probably missed about 50 to 90% of the story, depending on how much further you keep looking into it. And especially as students, I think there's a very important onus on us to make sure that we're keeping ourselves informed because no one else is gonna be doing it for us, right? And that's a very, very important thing. Once we go into the workforce, we need to stand for what we think will be correct, and that, that's something that we're trying to harbor here. Uh, do you guys have any other thoughts uh, in closing? I guess one thing that I'll continue to think about, and not just with pipeline issues, but with issues in general um, that have social implications, is, is where we stand, in, I guess, in terms of being engineers in this whole big picture. And although a lot of these issues don't necessarily seem to be explicitly tied to engineering, they're, I'm, my, I'm, my curiosity is centered around how engineering steps in and could potentially make a difference. I guess um, in closing here, I just wanted to say to our listeners that um, I guess what you should gather from this podcast is that um, I mean, we're obviously not the most informed people when it comes to this subject. There's obviously people who know more about this than we do, who, <clears throat> who have been involved in this issue more than we have. But what it really comes down to is um, for, for more people to understand the issues that are going on, not just with this issue, but any issue that's occurring, that's, uh, you know, leaving an impact on the world. You got to stay informed. And you got to be aware of what's happening when it comes to these kinds of issues. So, yeah, stay informed. And if you ever feel like you have information that could be shared 
to, I guess, better inform other people, we invite you to come out, reach out to us, and partake in one of our uh, regular podcast sessions. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the first ever uh, Engineers Without Borders UW chapter podcast, and we hope to see you next time.